I don't think it would be worth us living in with that Jewish people. We'd all be sitting in caves, dashed with woes and grunting at each other. That's what I was saying. I had two wonderful hours over lunch in the company of Julie Burchill at one of her favourite places on the Sussex coast, in Hove actually. Like the medium which made her famous, she's an open book. Julie started her glittering writing career at the NME in 1976, aged 17, and left when she was 19 as she thought that people in their 20s who still wrote about music were sad old men. Since then, she's had number one best-selling novels, won an Emmy and been condemned in the House of Commons for tranny-baiting. Now in her 60s, she proclaims she's in glorious decline, but still a cracking little scribbler. And there's another consistent dimension to her writings. She's always loved Jews and Israel. For a while, she learnt modern Hebrew at night class and even joined a synagogue. Uh, the wrong one, given her ardent Zionist leanings. We got together to promote her brand new substack, julieburchill.substack.com, and in particular, her new novella, The Judgment of Solomons, the story of an unlikely aliyah between an Israeli and his second wife, a non-Jewish woman with the son from his first marriage just hanging around. But the story has an extraordinary raison d'etre. Stay tuned to find out what that is. And then our conversation matured into the themes of her brilliant book, Unchosen, an autobiography through the prism of her long-held philo-Semitism. There's also the why and when she quit cocaine. Yep, that's included too. We lift the lid on what motivates her prolific writing career and why Israelis are turned on by the raw sex appeal of the Birmingham accent. Yep, you heard me right. I kid you not. There's such a funny fact about Israel, Israel and Burmese. About 15 years ago, an Israeli bar advertised in a Birmingham... I'm not making this up and everyone says I am. They advertised in a Birmingham local newspaper that they wanted to go and work in Tel Aviv. It was because to the Israeli ear, the Burmese accent is apparently wildly sexy and drives them mad. That's unbelievable. Well, I know, yeah. I should try it out. <laughs> Do you think I can get anyone I want to? Yeah. On the beach, all right. Oh, yeah. All right, kid. But I don't know where it came from, but it was a genuine thing. And how, if you Google it, I'm sure you'll How am you, Bab? <laughs> you want to come for a drink? Stay tuned for a lovely conversation practising her three favourite hobbies. Luncheon, modern Hebrew and spite. <laughs> And if you're new to Johnny Gould's Jewish State, scroll back a couple of episodes to listen to the great Douglas Murray. Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends that I describe in, in the war on the West. I mean, it actually it bucks some of the trends I described in the strange death of Europe. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to um, unite its people. And the amazing story of Rudolf Verber, the teenage Jew who escaped Auschwitz, told the world so, 
and saved 200,000 Hungarian Jewish lives, as told by Jonathan Friedland. Verber, there's, I, I think it is very much part of the story why he's not more famous. Part of it is that he was angry, as you said. It meant he pointed an accusing finger at people who I think we all would rather were not part of the accused. So I think there is a comfortable way of telling the Second World War story, which is all evil resided in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Germans and the Nazis, and everyone else was on the side of good, you know, meaning the Allies, the United States, Britain, everybody else. Now, that's not true. It's more complicated. It can't be. It can't be. And now, here is the unrepentant, unapologetic and undefeated Julie Burchill. As we sat down, she pulled out a certificate and accompanying letter. The Anglo-Jewish community planted a tree in Israel, honouring those who stood by the Jewish community, including Julie. Well, I'm quite a material person. And I have won um, an international Emmy for Sugar Rush, but I'd say this is my most precious possession. There's a letter written to me in uh, 11 21, and it says, Julie, attached, get a bit funny, really. Yeah. <laughs> Attaches a certificate from the Jewish National Fund to recognise and celebrate the planting of a tree in Israel in your name. It was planted in recognition of your contribution to the fight against anti Semitism in the UK. What gives this recognition added value? The site does not come from an organisation or committee, neither is it some official award. This is a gift of recognition and a way of saying thank you from real people who thought you stood up for British Jews and spoke out against those that seek to harm them. In practical terms, a public campaign was created in which members of the British Jewish community could put forward the names of people they felt were fighting alongside them in their recent struggles against the growing problem of anti-Semitism. They donated the money to cover the cost of the tree that was to be planted. Your name was one of those nominated. Therefore, this certificate represents a truly sincere thank you from Jewish people for standing by them. I may personally have run the campaign, but had no input or say in who was put forward. I therefore take this opportunity to add my personal thanks. I know as much as any that there is always a personal cost to this type of activity. Sincere thanks, David Collier. Oh, wow. That's lovely. Well, thank you very much for everything you've done. It's been such a pleasure. Um, I don't think it would be a world worth living in without Jewish people. We'd all be sitting in caves, (laughs) dabbed with woad and grunting at each other. That's what I would say. You know, and and David's a great guy. He's wonderful, um, isn't he? he? He's an amazing guy because he is so independent. He is literally on his own. Is he one of your lot or one of my lot? Oh, he's he's one of one of my lot. Oh, right. Yeah, um, he's one of those colliers who's in fact a Cohen. Oh yeah, Tom Bauer was uh, Tom Bauer's name. He was a Cohen, I think. I love Tom Bauer. Yeah. Have you read the book yet? Yeah, which one? The new Prince Harry book. Yeah. One. Yeah. You don't need to buy it. A man called H. G. Tudor, who calls himself the supreme narcissist, is reading each chapter on YouTube. Oh, really? Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> I love the way that he 
just come out and say that I want it to hasten their demise. I mean, you don't yeah. want it to hasten yeah. demise. You're not meant to say that, are we'll, you? We'll you go with say, demise. You're we'll meant g- to say, oh, it's just a professional job. But it's great to see him so invested in a spiteful angle. Yeah, he's found his voice in written terms now. He's such a good, clever he's man. A good but guy. gosh, what are they going to do? They're going to have to sue, or it looks true. But they won't sue because it's obviously been so lawyered and the Sunday Times ran it. Yeah. I used to work for the Sunday Times and they've got the best lawyers in the world. They had to defend me when I could. Um, I said he looked like <laughs> which is fair comment which, was, which I thought was all, made all the difference Yeah. I've got to say Julie there was one incident on my podcast where someone called someone a liar and I thought right I can't use that because that is two dimensional yeah. so what I did was I faded it out and instead read the article from the book because it had been published Could you tell and they had the book was? it was the Tuvia Tannenbaum book about British Jews mm, you know the taming it. of the Jew um, he's great right. he's absolutely fearless Tuvia and uh, another friend I'd like to call you my friend after this yes I'd like that that would be really I'm nice I'm always up for making new friends because I, I lose them so quickly I always have to make new ones very quickly <laughs> a revolving door a diminishing cue <laughs> so uh, Julie Birchill the warmest of welcomes to Johnny Gould's Jewish State Shalom Johnny Shalom Julie it's a pleasure to be doing two of the three things you do as hobbies luncheon and modern Hebrew and spite and spite well yeah spite you know it's it's uh, you do spite I'm, I'm not so good at it <laughs> so I suppose if it's modern Hebrew I'm going to say mashlomech mashlomech any tovar any low um Nihiot Samim. I was trying to say I'm well and I don't take drugs, but it came yeah. out. <laughs> I used to have, be able to speak it so well, but with the COVID, I stopped going to my class. Yes, yes. And it's all disappeared, and now I can just say two things. Annie Rotz Samim Horbe, I want lots of drugs. Mm. And, uh, so low, useful in Tel Aviv. Lower CTXA, I didn't do it, which is going to come in very handy. Very for useful, me. very yeah, useful. That's definitely put on my gravestone. <laughs> so, Julie, this is the first time you've appeared on my podcast. Yeah. I've been. Really looking forward to this for a very, very long time. I remember asking you two and a half years ago <gasps> when I was reading Unchosen. By the I'm way, it's in my bag. I... No, no, no. It, we had, you know, we had pandemic, yeah. and and and, but we were always in touch via Facebook. But it's not the first time you've been mentioned. You probably know this. Mm? You opened my conversation with the great Brendan O'Neill <gasps> on, on Welcome to the Woke Tribes. We love Brendan. We love Brendan, and it was the story of cancel culture, which in its place became cancelled. A case of life imitating art. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brendan said, uh, "You couldn't make this up." And he's a great supporter and a great friend of Israel. Yeah, he is. And of Jewish people. He very much is. Like most working class meritocrats, he recognises outsiders who made it on their own merits. You couldn't make it up, as they used to say on the newspapers in the old days. Um, you know, a book about cancel culture being cancelled. And you know, what's I think what is really infuriating about this is that. Um, Little Brown, obviously, they hired Julie Birchall because she is Julie Birchall. And now they have fired Julie Birchall because she is Julie Birchall. That's essentially what's happened. Everyone, anyone who's familiar with the work of Julie Birchall, I'm a fan of hers. I must say I've been reading her for years and years and years. Um, They know she's very colourful. She's very outspoken. She's often very offensive. She doesn't give a damn if people are offended. That's always been her style right back to the 1980s. So... Um, But I think what's changed, of course, is the broader culture. And the broader culture is now one that is alarmingly intolerant to anyone who has 
a different way of thinking or a colourful way of speaking or who expresses themselves in, in less than politically correct terms. And I always think, I mean, it was simple-minded when Morrissey just said, oh, they're just jealous. And it was such a teenage girl thing to say about Israel's critics, you're jealous. But I think there's an element of, you know, all racism has got contempt in it, but the, the racism against the Jews is, is made worse for the people who suffer from it because of the envy thing going on too. Oh, you're awful, but you're all rich and that kind of rubbish. Do you see what I mean? I do. And I, I'm just, just to expand on that, there's so many, so many ways to unpack that. But I think it's because Jews who practice it, either in a secular way or in an orthodox way, do it in a particularist way, and that clashes with the universalist world. And so, because of that, they're jealous of the particularist nature of our practice. When you say practice, do you mean religion? I mean, I mean, I'm obviously as you can say I'm not I'm not religious, but I am I am probably a particularist in the sense that I go to synagogue and I'd send my kids to Jewish school and I want them to learn Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. Yes. I think you're stubborn and you can't be walked over and people would like to walk over people these days. Yeah. Wokeism is just wokeism is just another way of the ruling class telling the other classes how to think. Mm. Except they now are doing it for our own good as opposed to keep us keeping us humble. But it's all the same and I'm not doing it. No. Listen, Brendan came up with this absolutely brilliant analysis which was wrapped around Brexit, the nation-state, which is, of course, why he supports Israel. He sees a parallel between how he views Britain, his view of Britain, and Israel, the nation-state. He said that the Jews and the Europeans took two very different lessons from the Second World War, and that is why the schism has expanded and why he's such a Brexiteer. I think this is possibly why you're a Brexiter. It's certainly the reason why you're going to answer this for me. Uh, But he said that uh, the European idea of the Second World War was that borders created conflict Mm. and let's have happy, clappy borders and keep it all open. But the Jews' takeaway from the Second World War was it's absolutely essential to protect oneself with a nation-state, to protect oneself, to defend oneself. And that is, he says, the schism the problem that's emerged from those who support the European Union and those who are Zionists. You know, the lesson that um, Western Europeans drew from the Second World War is that the nation state is a problem, gives rise to conflict and we need the EU and all this happy, clappy post-border stuff. So the, the Western, uh, Europe, Western Europe draws the lesson that the nation state is a bad thing. The lesson that the Jews draw from the Second World War is that the nation state is absolutely essential for one's survival. And I think that's actually a very good description of the shift that has taken place and which has grown more and more over the decades. So you now have Western European intellectuals and activists and um, members of the cultural elite who are very self-consciously post-borders, anti-nation state, all that kind of crap, in my view. And then they look at Israel, which is a nation absolutely determined to protect its borders for very good reason. It's surrounded by hostile forces, very devoted to its national integrity, very devoted to self-protection. And they just see this nasty colonial style apartheid project drenched in racism. I mean, that's how they view Israel in these very irrational terms. So that shift, I think, tells us less about how Israel may have changed. I'm sure Israel has changed uh, over the decades, but I think it tells us far more about how the left has changed and how they've abandoned their commitment to national self-determination and the right of the Jewish people to defend themselves 
and and they've shifted towards a position of myopic irrational hatred of the state of israel Indeed. never heard that before but it makes a lot of sense like that most thing brendan says yeah, he's good, isn't he? And he smells lovely. The only person I've come across who smells nicer than him is Dermot O'Leary, the TV man. Yeah, I heard he wears perfume nicely. <laughs> he's got a menorah in his house, Dermot. <gasps> I didn't know that. I is think it his so, wife? Yeah. I don't know. I know he's very religious. I don't know. Uh, he's Catholic. I remember meeting him once and he said to me, your lot, the Protestants, and my lot, the Catholics, I've got to do so much to stop these atheists. It was very funny. Ah, now that is interesting because I had a... I haven't had exactly that conversation with Douglas Murray, but we talked about where the Anglican Church was going wrong for him. He's, yeah. And, you know, there were a lot of parallels, I think, between the, his view of what he believed the Anglican Church should be and where it's going wrong yeah. and where Jewish values are. Uh-huh. He said that was very interesting to me. Yeah, the constant bleating. When you think that Christians are the most persecuted people in the world... We wouldn't think it to the leadership of the church. No. It's like they can go hang, can't they? Yeah, they've got, they've gone wrong. I mean, we talked about Calvin Robinson oh, as well. Him. Yeah, he's really good, isn't he? Wonderful I mean, man. he joined another form of the Anglican church because as a black man, he was challenging a white Anglican woman's view yeah. that they actually believed that there was racism being practiced in the pews of the churches. And he said, no, there isn't. And uh, they didn't believe him or didn't want him. And so, therefore, he became ordained in another version of the Anglican Church. Oh, talk about their loss. Real, real loss. He's a wonderful man. He's a good man. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't, a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers, and so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Gould. So the purpose, one of the purposes today is to talk about your new book and five chapters are out there. Yeah, it's not a book and it won't be a book though. It's just going to be on a substack called The Judgment of Solomon's. It's a very rude book, but very funny, <laughs> yeah. which I think is its uh, saving grace, yeah. 
It is, it is rude. And uh, it's published exclusively on julieburchill.substack.com. Uh, and it starts off with Jackie Swallow yeah. about to have anal sex with her husband, Dov Landau, when she saw her son, Josh Solomons, walking past the window. Oh, dear. It's naunty and raunchy in Julie style, about a second marriage, an unlikely alia for a new husband and his Gentile wife and her son from the first marriage getting in the way. Uh, Julie, is this your fantasy? No, and I'll tell you what, the characters are real, um, in that I'm like Jackie and my late son Jack is very much like Josh, but the two husband characters are totally invented, I don't want anybody getting upset or jumping up and down or going to the lawyer, <laughs> because the two husbands are totally invented, though Jackie is based on myself and Josh and my poor son Jack. Nice. I'd love, I'd love, love to go to live in Israel, but I don't. I think it's probably too late for me now, I'm 63. It's not too late. You're allowed to go there if you have no Jewish blood. But you can buy a property in Israel. It's a free Western society. But then I couldn't society. get in to see it. I couldn't live there, could I? Could, is there not a... Th- I actually don't know what the rules are. I, I mean, I'm a British citizen as well. I tried before about ten years ago. Yeah. I think marriage is the only hope for me, and I'm already <laughs> married. <laughs> um, the Judgment of Solomon is a story from the Torah in which Solomon is ruled between two women, both claiming to be the mother of a child. And so he says, cut it in half. That's it. And the white mother goes, oh, no, she can have it then. But he knows she's the right one if she give it away. So is the son from the first marriage, Josh Solomons, hinting that he might be, well, the key figure in the story as this develops in chapters? Is is that how you've yeah. cleverly constructed the title? It's a very it's a very funny and rude book, but it's very... It's quite emotional, too. Jack... Oh, call him Jack. Josh will soon meet the daughter of an American settler... Uh, in Jerusalem, and he will become involved with the settler movement. Uh, and I'm, I love Israel, but I know that I'm not going to whitewash what happens. And I know that some teenagers from the settlements give the Arab neighbours a very hard time, um, and have done in the past. So it's going to become quite explosive. Yeah. Julie, there's another uh, element to the character of Josh Solomons, which is that he's a version of your late son Jack. He is. Jack was the apple of my eye. He was the one person that I was really loved, I suppose. And when he died in 2015, I um, put the book aside. I started it in 2013. Um... But when I took it out, it occurred to me that, though he was dead, I could write him another life as though he lived. With all his problems and unbearableness and sweetness, I could give him a life that he never had. And that's what I did. So, the, this book 
on Substack will have a happy ending? There are many forms of happy ending. I hope it will have at least one of them. I did laugh at your Monjuic joke, the Barcelona mountain, yeah. Mount of the Jews. <laughs> That's my mum's nickname, too. Um, oh but you also times. sum up your favourite Israeli cities in pithy paragraphs. Tel Aviv, the, the go-getting metropolis of cultural dynamism and, of course, world-class technical innovation. Yeah. Elat, greed is good and flashy is fashionable. Yeah lovely alliteration there and you said more than once that you want to retire to Tel Aviv you just said that y- you won't do that is Hoven bright and good enough it's not bad it. here I love it here it's lovely here I isn't know, it 27 years ago to chase my husband and and they said it wouldn't work I was dating his sister he was 13 years younger than me but I knew if I came here and chased him I'd get him and we've been together for 27 years it's a long marriage he won't go and live in Tel Aviv we've had our arguments about things so I probably wouldn't go without him This is the the irony about settled marriages and I think it's lovely that you have a settled marriage It's not that settled, we don't even live together You don't live together Go each other mad We live like two blocks apart and we see each other Good fences make good neighbours and I think that's true of marriage as well (laughs) But I remember someone saying to me that uh, they would marry me if she continued to be able to live in her house and I thought well you know, I want to start off on the right footing. I do want to sort of create a home for whatever children we would deliver. So yeah. that was where I am. But I'm not 27 years in. I'm only five or six years in. How seven old years are you? in. I'm 55. Five years. I'm 63. I'll never yeah. grow up though. Yeah. No, but I mean, why should you? They say you you stay at the age where you became successful at the thing you loved, and for me, that was 17. Right. So I guess I've never grown up properly. That's very interesting. Yeah. I've matured in some ways. Because I kicked off when I was 25, but I've had to reinvent myself a couple of times in business and stuff because it doesn't always work. I've become very stoic, and I don't... Even 10 years ago, I couldn't... I would have a fit about the wrong type of water being served. I was like a pun shot Mariah Carey. (laughs) But I've been reading the Stoics for like... 10 years now and I've totally changed even Daniel my husband said you're unrecognisable as that awful person that used to throw things yeah well you know we all we all so but there's still the, there's still the same person in there yeah totally. do you do you feel like you this is probably a silly question to Julie Birchall but have you self-censored in any way in older age or do you still is this is there some aspects of your writing which have matured in the sense that I can't say that anymore I'm 63 is there something well, in I've that? I've been kicked out of so many newspapers <laughs> and given uh-huh. the heave so many times that I now find myself in the lovely position of having enough money not to care about it and I now just concentrate on writing for the people who I know. Yes. I'm going to have uh, the ab dabs whenever I say boot or goose. Um, so, yeah, I ain't got to worry about that as a spectator or a spike or even um, the mail, which I'm working for today. So it's nice because in the end you find your audience, you find open-minded people, and that's just the way it must be. And that's how it should be. Yeah. And we are getting past that time. There was an aspect of my life where I was cancelled. and what happened? I was involved with Aston Villa, which... How many years ago? Only two or three years okay. ago. And I was a member of the Supporters Trust. I was a director of it. Uh-huh. And during the Gaza War... I spoke out yeah. because I've got to. Yeah. And a huge amount of racism got plopped on top of me. And the Aston Villa chairman, the owner, uh, his mm. chief executive, had me for lunch to basically try and see if I wasn't going to do 
a Yorkshire cricket club on them, which by that time my anger had been soothed. What's that mean? Yorkshire you know, you know that guy who accused Yorkshire Cricket Club of institutional racism. I don't follow cricket. Right. Well, it's and Scottish cricket are involved in it oh, as well. I heard about that. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. So he's just checking me out, and by that time I decided that I was only interested in Aston Villa in the first team and their manager rather than the sort of grotty fans who are Corbynists. Oh, yeah. Um, but the biggest sadness for me in football was that being Brummies together, being wherever you're from, whether you're Sikh or Chinese, Jewish, Catholic or Protestant, Aston Villa was you no longer... Brotherhood on the terrace. Yeah, uh, and that actually turned out not to be true. And and I, I kind of... Uh, I was cancelled and kicked out. I was I sort of resigned myself. Because if you have a dimensional life, Julie, you don't really need that. You can become members of other things. You know, you can't truly be cancelled if you lead a dimensional life, can you? That's very true. I often feel about whether it's losing a job or losing a friend. It's the thing that gives you the impetus to go and do something new. Um, When I had... I mean, every journalist, there are so many of us, and it's nice to see the little column with your face on the picture on it. But I'd gotten very lazy writing for the Telegraph. Took up so much of your time. You think about the column on the Thursday, you pitch it on the Friday, then you write in it. I could take, make twice as much money now as I did working for them. And I'm not sorry to leave them. They're lost. Yeah, they're lost. I'm learning that as well. That actually it's... Uh, although it's a bit of a shock at the time and it might be a bit upsetting, actually moving on makes you stronger and more independent, doesn't the it? The obstacle is the way, as the yeah. Stoics say. Very good, I like that. I like that one. <laughs> I'd have to, wouldn't I? <laughs> so, it's an exquisite text. The descriptions of Tel Aviv in particular, or once I joke, because it's a beautiful city, I love it as well. Uh, there's a there's a hint of Linda Grant's When We Lived in Modern <gasps> Times. That's like my favourite novel. It's a love affair with Tel Aviv, isn't it? It's oh the, the white God. city, it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful It's a beautiful book. book, isn't it? If I could write a book, one-fifty of that good, I'd be so happy. <laughs> I met Linda, she doesn't, I met her in Israel, and she doesn't approve of me, but I don't care, I think she's a genius. Yeah, she's brilliant, yeah. Luckily, none of her later books were any good, so I can still like her. <laughs> I, I, it's funny that, I, I ordered the next book, because yeah. I so loved that book, but yeah, I think no. it was her, um, I, I think it was... In her clothes? In, yes, yeah. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that's always a nice feeling, when somebody who thinks a genius comes up with a bad book, and then, you know, suddenly life isn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Help support my work with a one-off donation. It's always gratefully received and noticed. And you could make a monthly contribution as I continue to generate stories and podcasts. There's a few ways of doing it. Go to paypal.me slash Jonathan L. Gould. That's paypal.me slash Jonathan L. Gould. Or support me at patreon.com slash Johnny Gould. Or drop me a fiver for a posh coffee at ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. So here we are in Brighton and Hove, uh-huh. and you enrolled in Hebrew classes here in Brighton with your friend Carl Henry, uh-huh. but you don't do them anymore. Uh-huh. But this is a really old Jewish community. Yeah. And there are We've mysterious... we synagogues within... There's the Lubavitch... Then there's the extreme left-wing one, yeah. I had the unfortunate experience with. Rabbi Call Me Ellie. Yeah, then there's the reform one, where I used to go. And there was, there was actually four of them within a tiny yeah. few square miles. And there's that amazing building of Jewish ghosts, Jew Street. 
by the never, lanes. I ain't never been to Tuesday. Right, so... But there's also a beautiful... In the lanes, there's also a beautiful... Uh, middle old, Street. Middle Street, so mm-hmm. yeah. So we've got loads of them. And but no Jewish food shops, which is, I think, terrible. Yeah, that, isn't there a... No, but that's going to come because you know that Tony Bloom, the owner of Brighton and Hove Albion, is building an amazing new synagogue and Jewish community centre. Oh, wow. Yeah, in Hove. Yeah. And it's going to fund itself with properties and rented properties and that's going to keep the Jewish community together it's a fantastic idea it, it's brilliant well he, he's got the means to do it and Tony Bloom yeah I've never heard of him. he's the owner of the football club oh, nice. amazing guy and it's undergoing that incredible renaissance but your tangle with uh, the liberal Jewish community I, I could have if I'd have known you before today I could, have, I could have advised you yeah because they're a bit anti-Zionist oh, those guys God, and that's not your kind of very, very. You're, Zionist. you're, if you're like, but like a sort of religious Zionist without being religious or indeed Jewish. Yeah. That that sort of that that is possible. I think so. Of course, the best one was Ord Wingate, who was the great soldier who um, went and joined the Haganah at the end of World War Two. Yeah. Uh, very posh uh, Christian brethren from Plymouth. Very posh. Amazing. Man, but that's all he lived for. I think of myself as like being Ord Wingate, but. Not as brave and going fighting, obviously. <laughs> because I have such a little voice, as I drink more, because I hate more <laughs> drunks, it gets quieter and quieter. Yeah, yeah. It's all atmospheric. Now, we've talked about Bride and Hove being a very old medieval Jewish community and actually on the up again, which is a rarity. But it's also got a problematic anti-Semitism oh. problem of but the hard left. already students. They, those students are the one thing that spoil this town. Yeah. They come down from those stupid rich homes and they like it here and they never go back again. And they just... I, nothing could spoil this place. It's gorgeous. But they're the sour lemons. They're the bad apples here. Mm. And every Saturday afternoon they have the Palestinian protests at the town square in Churchill yeah, Square. Yeah, but I'll tell is. you what, it's just like the beef eaters or something. They're just there now and nobody notices them. It's right. just like some sort of yeah, like it's going away, village, isn't it? village eccentric. When I used to do the counter protests outside the EcoStream shop many years ago, because that was owned by Israeli people, we had some good scuffles then. I was put in a police van once until to calm down. Well it was played. Yeah, thank no, you. Thank you. Thank you. I do like a scrap. <laughs> no, to say that, are you? No, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, of course you are. The Labour Party conferences here during the Jeremy Corbyn era were particularly stressful. Were they? Yeah, they were. And I know that um, a couple of brave local guys, there's a guy called Simon Cobb, Sussex friends from Israel. You know, really you must well. know him. Yeah, I met him on the picket line. He was there. I mean, he's a, he's a big guy. He's, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a really good man. And we do have the MP for Kemptown and Peacehaven, a guy called Lloyd <gasps> Russell Moyle. That was disgusting. Yeah, he practices, I think, what a lot of people call... Palestinianism. Um, He's kinky about it. There's something kinky about that. I probably shouldn't say this. (laughs) You see some sort of things. Some people go into politics in a wholesome way or they care about society, but especially on the Corbynite, amongst the Corbynites, you get the feeling they're getting a parasexual frenzy out of things. Yeah, it it comes from some other place, doesn't it? I was at that book with the three minutes hate in it. It's George Orwell, it's 1984. It's like during the three minutes hate, people get more and more. Aroused in a frenzy, and I think that's what Corbyn likes to That's, that's where it comes from, isn't yeah, it? So they get all worked up and yeah, it's unnecessary. Yeah, it, it's also, if you like, it's 
a luxury hate, if you like, you know, like luxury yeah, communism. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, like, like they, they have no need to do that. They've got all the food on the table that they want, so they just sort them, of spring some hate It makes everywhere. them feel alive because they're so dull. And they've got all their privileges. They've got dull lives and dull minds. They get angry at people who are a bit vivid, do something. Yeah, That's yeah. The tall poppy syndrome, cutting off the yeah. the head of the, the, the talented one. In fact, you only have to look at the one show on BBC Breakfast to see... Uh, that that's already been practiced by the BBC. They don't have talent on that network anymore, no, do they? No, they don't, do they? And when they say they're diversity, they just mean people of all genders and colours and religions saying exactly the as same thing. As long as they agree yeah. on one particular just position. Just saying the same thing. Now, I loved Unchosen. and I Look, so did Brian Ferry. Yeah. He came in such a shock ha- to so, me. So, where did he find this? Do, do, no is, he a, is he a mate? No, he's not. But I've idolised him since I was a little girl. I love Brian Ferry too. His music speaks of such happiness in England, doesn't it? Such progress. I'd never thought about that. I think his songs are like love songs. They really are. They're beautiful. Every single yeah, one's beautiful. Very sad. And anyway, I bought this off because um, it'll <gasps> be like, look, I don't know who Jill is, but oh, you'd already sign. So will you, si- will, you, will you sign it again for me? Thank you for the what? For the sweet dreams. Bloody Nora, that looks a bit rude. Who's, who's she? Jill, Dearest she must have been Jill. very good in bed. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, maybe you can sign another page yeah. for me today. Will you do that? I'd love it if you did. Because so I love I loved Unchosen. It's so funny when someone you autograph a book. <laughs> and then it it's already been done, yeah. Again. It's the first time this has ever happened. I think it's very funny because I work in uh, the mine shop and I, I'm the steamer of the clothes, but I also have a huge pile of books because I'm to sort through them when the steam is warming up. A few times I found books found your own book. dedicated to people. Oh, thanks, mate. Well, <laughs> this one is not going to be given away ever. And thank you so much for signing. I'm going to assume we're going to have so much fun. So much fun. Well, we are having fun. Thank, thank you, you Julie. That's kind. Thank you. Oh, I've got something for you, too. Have you? Give it to everybody I like. It's called, it's called a space pen. It's ah. the pen the astronaut shoes. Oh, that is it? Pen. It can write underwater in a fire. Well, if you're not going to want to write in a fire. Thank you so much. Thank well, you. Gorgeous. Thank you. Best, best pen That's ever kind. made. That's yes, really I am kind. quite generous, but <laughs> very spiteful too. I've got a bit of both worlds. Like so my that. next question was, how did Brian Ferry come to describe your book as riotous? Where did you find him? Are you in contact with him? Never, no. Unfortunately, um, I just somebody said, wow, go and look at the man on Sunday this Christmas. I don't know what year it was. And um, there it was. And he just said, reading this on my tour, it's by my bed every night. I'm not surprised he's a fan and he's on the same wavelength as you I can feel it in the music and the songs I think that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me but we're very different he likes hunting and all that rubbish does he? right right, I adore him he's from a different plane Um, I don't mean Virginia Mm -hmm. (laughs) now I remember you describing years ago the first time I ever came across you was about 25 years ago in an audio interview on the BBC where you described your appreciation for Jewish people in terms of experiencing anti-Semitism in your own family and friends many years ago and you said oh you know when I come across it I don't like it and and sometimes I even experience my family Mm, I'll tell you what that was my parents were very working class Bristolians never met a Jewish person but they didn't have an iota of badness in their bodies they were incredible people it was when I just really it taken in my head I think it was after the Yom Kippur War I must have been about 12 and I go into, I put this in the book, go into the kitchen and go to my mum, I'm, I'm a good little girl, 
Well, I'm going to marry a Jew one day. <laughs> my mother is doing the washing up and she flaps her teeth. We're obviously going to find a bleeding Jew around here. And that's what she said to me. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know, just like, you know, want, they just... But she didn't, rule, she didn't rule it out. She told me I could get one. And she was right, I had to yeah. go to London to get one. <laughs> um, but it was just that she's, you know, expressions about money or this, that, the other. And then as I put in the book... I was 18 and I came in one night and my dad was weeping. I never, never cried except when the dog died. Proper working class man. <laughs> he was weeping and it was that awful Meryl Street miniseries, uh, Holocaust. Right. And he just came to me and he said, I never knew, I never knew. And I was full of such anger. And I said, well, that's nice for you, isn't it? And I ran up, <laughs> ran up the stairs and slammed my door. I was such a, such a little madam. But it was just ignorance. I do hear occasionally still... I've got to say this, in hairdressers' salons only last year, people saying, do this, do that, yeah. and I'm not going to get up and have a fight with them. But it makes me so... It, what it does is useful. It just makes me feel even more yeah. they have to have their own country. Yeah. You can never trust. Yeah. Don't trust whitey, that's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, right, you know, sort of I walk, I walk down the street with my blue eyes and my potato nose, and I blend in. But, of course, if I did walk... Payas and I had a couple on. Yeah, I'd cop it, I but know. I don't, and so therefore I do avoid it. But of course, from the inside, I do get anti-Semitism. I, I do, I do experience it more than I should would from people ever, who know. From people who know I'm Jewish. Would I you think. ever think of going to Israel to live? I, I have thought about it. My friend um, did it, and he said it was hellish. Right, the, the whole immigration process. Yes, got a funny joke that he told me. Shall I tell it to yeah, you? Yeah. Right, <laughs> the man, he's very licentious and he likes a good time, and. Uh, Yes, he, he dies momentarily, and he goes to hell. And it's just full of women in bikinis and kisses and beer. And he goes, whoa, and then he's pulled back by the surgeons. He's back in life. So then he lives a nice life, and he's about to die. And he gets a choice, and St. Peter says, do you want to go to heaven here, or do you want to go to hell? And he goes, oh, I'm going to go to hell, please. <laughs> so he goes down to hell. No birds and bikinis and no pizzas and beer. Just demons poking you out of a fiery furnace. Yeah. Man goes to a devil. But when I came before, and the devil goes, that was vacation, this is immigration. I wish I loved that. That's lovely, that's lovely. And uh, my friend who went there said, oh, I've never gone through such bureaucracy, bad faith in my life. He said, really? I wish I'd gone to Cyprus when I had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, I mean, I'm culturally English, I'm British, and I'm from Birmingham, which was a massive city with a tiny Jewish community. Yeah. And so I am used to <gasps> the modern... I've got such a funny fact about Israel, Israel and Brummies. About 15 years ago, an Israeli bar advertised in a Birmingham... I'm not making this up, and everyone says I am. They advertising a Birmingham local newspaper... Did they want to go and work in Tel Aviv? And it was because to the Israeli ear, the Brummy accent is apparently wildly sexy and drives them mad. That's unbelievable. Well, I know, yeah. I should try it out. <laughs> Do you think I could get anyone I wanted? Yeah. On the beach, all right. Oh, yeah. All right, kid. But I don't know where it came from, but it was a genuine thing. And how, if you Google it, I'm sure you'll find it. How am you, Bab? <laughs> you want to come for a drink? Oh, that's a, that's a drink. What do they feel Peter. about the Bristolian accent? Would you try it that one? It was just the Brummy one. Apparently, yeah. they're crazy for it. That just sounds unbelievable. That I know, like, I love it. That is, sounds like heaven. Well, sorry, Corrine, I'm on my way. <laughs> um, now, look, our mutual hero, Douglas Murray, he doesn't like the word philosemitism. Right, he worries. He does sound like a bit of pastry. A and you put it in the book, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does sound pastry. But you put it in the book as well. You analyse the word philosemitism 
as well in the book and and he worries that the condition can be sometimes two sides of the same coin hmm. instead he calls himself a supporter of Israel and a friend of the Jewish people well a friend of the Jewish people sounds a bit like no, he's a guide dog or something. <laughs> <laughs> An emotional assistance animal. Unlike Philo Semite, because it's so bald. Yeah, it's the opposite it. of the yeah. And you have been extremely consistent over the years. It's crazy. Um, whenever there's an election in Israel, uh, when I meet my friend the next day, I always go, We won! And she goes, Well, which party? And I went, I don't care. Doesn't matter. It's got this democracy. Yeah, so we all won. It's yeah. true, it's true. And it's a different kind of left and right paradigm there. You know, I wish I'd known you a couple of years ago before the pandemic because when David did the, the trees, he also did one to some very dear friends, Labour Against Anti Semitism, Emma Pickin, Emma Feltham, and you and Phillips. Do you know those guys? No, I don't know them. Do you know Zoe Kim? Yeah. I do know she's Zoe, and I think she's she wonderful. she's wonderful. One of kind. Yeah, she is. She's amazing, and he he gave trees to them. And I did a show at JW3 in Finchley Road where Emma. Yeah, it's great. It's I a nice place. Lovely. Uh, Emma and Ewan were there, and it was like a covered. You know, it was like a, you know what I mean. It was like a kind of. These are the guys. This is the Praetorian Guard. These are the guys. Yeah. And I'd I'd love to have known you then, and and you would have been up there with me. It was like an interview for everyone to see that these people were there and, and, and David was there and, and, and so many people were there. I can't get over how great this cover is. It's, it's a lovely one and it, it speaks so perfectly, That's me. doesn't it? Yes, um, yes, I got the metaphor. I did get permission from the man, Bernard. <laughs> Who were the real, are they real Rabonim? Yeah, they're real people. It was Purim. And did you have to ask each, every, each and every one of them for no, their... No, I just asked Bernard and he had, he had rights to it. Oh, lovely. That's very good. <laughs> Writing, Julie, is more than anything a compulsion. Like some people wash their hands 30 times a day for fear of awful consequences if they do not. It pays a whole lot better than this type of compulsion, but it's no more heroic. Julie Birchill said that. Yeah. You said that. Now, can we discuss, you said it in, in, and I think in here and in other articles, that speaking is your second language. Yeah, what a great line that is. It's a fascinating take and you live for your writing yeah, no you. wonder you're so prolific you're always on deadlines you're always writing for everyone very professional yeah for a delinquent <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's because you you live for it i do if you said i could keep my writing but lose literally everything else well i'd need my sight to do it obviously but all my friends my marriage it's a shame to say it i would accept that bargain 
Really? Yeah. Really. It's got to be your own your own voice within the written. Don't word. quite like saying it. Do you do you write or do you type? How do you do it? On my little computer. Yeah, just on a computer. You never do you actually physically ever write? No. No. But I'm very lazy too, so I've got I've got a beautiful flat with a view of the sea and lounge on my little day bed on the balcony. And I think, oh my gosh, I'm being paid to do it. So beautiful. It's crazy. Yeah. When I was a little girl of seventeen. I did come from a very blue-collar background, and I was expected to go into a shop, a factory, teacher training college if I was really lucky, uh-huh. which wouldn't suit yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, and to think I, I made it, and I'm still doing it. It's amazing. It blows my mind sometimes. Yeah. And It'd be hard to be and not And Mazeltov and Kolakov, well done to Thank you, you, really. Kolakov and Mazeltov, you must know as well. I'm trying to remember all <laughs> Mazaltov, as they would say in, 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 in Hebrew, or in Israel, um, in Ivrit. So... But um, do you, because with my podcasts, I go back and back and back and I edit them and yeah. I put new music on them. I mean, once you're published in a third-party article, it's done. But with Substack, do you ever go back in and nah. sort of write, you, you're done, I you just write? That. I'm a very dissociative person. The first time my husband ever saw me, I took him shopping once and he said, I didn't think women behaved like that. He only had the example of his uh, mother and sister, and he said, they'll take half an hour to choose a pair of socks. And I'll go, remember that one, that yeah, one, yeah. that one. And very decisive, and very I move good. very quickly. So you, you're not, you, you, look at, you don't look back at something and but, think, oh, I wish I'd written it slightly differently. No, if, if I'm embarrassed, like I know, I guess, from stuff from my teenage years, luckily the internet wasn't about then when I was at the yeah. enemy. The one, the one thing you just do is you think of it as juvenilia. The stuff you did in the past, and then if it's juvenile, it's meant to be juvenile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went into my grandma's podcast. I interviewed my grandma when I was seventeen in oh, nineteen eighty-four, wow. and and she's obviously not with us anymore. She would be a hundred and fourteen years okay. old now. But I did. If you've you've seen that uh, Lily's Promise book with Dov Foreman? You know the uh, the Auschwitz survivor, the old lady, and the yeah. young her great grandson. It's become a bestseller. And I did that with my grandma. I oh. wanted to tell my children, unborn children then, that we're not from here. This is what happened to my grandma. She survived Vienna. Um, she survived the Holocaust. And this is how she talks. And she was full of joy. Yeah. And she told her story about coming to Birmingham and what it meant and how she got, how she got to England. And I actually went into it again and reworked the introduction because I want it to be... Um, a, a library record for everyone, even for my family. Yeah. After I've gone, and I wanted to make it the best I can. Right. That's why I asked you if you ever go back. No, I I believe in the saying. I didn't make it up, but there's a saying which says, uh, "Perfection is the enemy of progress." And right. uh, I very much yeah. I like to dash through a thing, and you can. I've seen other people do it. You can write the spirit out of a piece if you refine it too much. Yeah, I understand. So I'd rather just bang it down. Get it in there quickly, and then they can chop it about if they want to. I'm not. Are you are you particularly covetous if an editor sort of takes your prose and chops it up? No, you're all right with it. What happens if they change the meaning of it? Do you get upset? I mean, do they ever do that? They do that. I don't know. I I don't know either. It says no. But if they, you know, if they sub it in some way, no. How could you change the meaning of a thing? And you get used to the headlines, you know, which are going to be silly. And I can't. Yeah, the headlines are misleading, aren't they? Doesn't bother me at all. Doesn't bother you. You'd have to be some sort of ninny to care about stuff like that Fair enough, especially that's... after my my long stretch in the business <laughs> now I've had the privilege of meeting a good few exquisitely talented people and I put you in that oh thank you sector and wonder whether the expression through other means than their speaking voice 
affects this speech. You're going to say a, something about my voice. You have a lovely you? voice. Well... It's it's unusual. It is. It's okay to say it's unusual, yeah, isn't no, it? Yeah, of course it is. Um, and the reason I say that is because Nigel Kennedy on violin... Oh, he's got a funny voice too. Yeah, he talks a bit like that, doesn't he? Well, mine's right. nicer than him. Yeah, and he's from he's actually born in Brighton, I think. He's from here originally. Yeah, I think he puts on that God Blimey thing, doesn't he? He does put God Blimey because he's a Villa no, fan. Nigel speaks like that. He comes, yeah, and he comes with, and he comes with me to Villa games, and he puts on a Birmingham accent oh. a bit as well. But I'm just oh, wondering. No, but I'm just wondering because he's he's so, and I've watched him play like so close. It's so beautiful. He plays klezmer like you've never heard klezmer before. It's like, it's so exquisite. It's like a new form of klezmer. I'm not a fan of Yiddish culture, to tell you the truth. Well, no, I know. I'm it's such so... a funny thing about it. Yeah, me. no, we'll come to that in a moment. That's very interesting. But anyway, but because he's so exquisite, he doesn't concentrate on his voice. And I spoke to an ex-footballer who said that he only became better at speaking when he quit the game. Because when he was a goalkeeper, he just had to stretch down for balls and sort of get them away. So his voice... I'm just wondering whether your voice is secondary and so you express yourself more exquisitely with your keyboard. I do express myself more intelligently when I write. <laughs> but in real life, if you knew me, gosh, I'm an awful gossip. And I do talk a lot, chatter constantly. Um, <laughs> but I use a very shy and quiet teenager... And I've grown into being a very sociable person, which I love. I, a friend of mine once said, he asked me to meet him for a coffee, and I said, well, I'll come, but can I bring three girls, and can we have cocktails, and then can we go to karaoke? And he said, you really don't, you're really not able to go out for coffee with a mate unless you turn it into a hen night, are you? And I thought about it, I thought, he's right. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. do like everything to be as near to a hen night as possible yeah. if I don't have a dead But that's hand. so nice, that's such a lovely... It is. Joie de vivre. Chain, it's yeah. a Yiddish word. Uh, a sort of a happy way of existing, a Hasidic way of, of living in a way. George Weidenfeld said, sociability is for me what sport is for other people, and I sort of feel that, yeah. Yeah, shakoyach, very nice. Yeah, shakoyach with strength yeah now because I remember you writing I'm glad you brought that up to remind me you said I'm not really into Yiddish culture I but like I, I'm actually into the sort of the active Israeli yeah. all action yeah. sort of Zionism yeah. the muscular Zionism of the of the sort of 20s and 30s yeah. in Europe rather I than I don't the, like sentiment yeah. and I don't like to think of the Jews being weak no and so much of Yiddishness is set the sorrow of the Kletzmer or the oi and I was glad that I wasn't being racist in this when my Hebrew teacher, Yael, who's, um, who's from Israel, she said that when she was growing up, her and her other young relatives would tease their grandmother for speaking Yiddish and would refuse to speak Yiddish to her. Mm. Which is sad, mm. but mm. We, ca- we can't. It, it's not a thing to cling to if you have a slave culture. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I understand that. My, you know, my grandma came from Vienna and... Yiddish had already disappeared in Central Europe. Yeah, I believe um, that. And she spoke. It's too much like German for me, and I hate yeah. the German language. It's yeah. the ugliest in the world. Although you know what, she spoke it. She spoke her Austrian German beautifully, and it felt differently because it was spoken with a Jewish voice. Yeah, I get that, it's, but it's I'm just so keen on the the renewal, the reimagining of Jewish culture yeah. as it was through strength and, oh, I better not go on down that road too much, I'll sound a bit bossy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's a very interesting... joy.
Judy, what is the future? That's a, such an interesting thing that you said about your view of Judaism being expressed through Zionism, through active Israeli life, rather than the past where Jews were part of a slave culture, were powerless yeah. in Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah. Now, my, you see, I tend to agree with you, but I, I cannot, I cannot unseat the memory of my, my great grandparents who deserve to, yeah, to be that. remembered, and that. they would be delighted at, yeah. at progress now. But what is the future of British Jewry, and what is the future of Israel? Do you think? Do you think Jews have a future in the UK? They do if they're prepared to be even more marginalised with the rises of other more aggressive religions, perhaps. They may find themselves like the Jews of France who are attacked very regularly. Um, who knows? Um, I wouldn't want to speak for them. If I were a Jew, I would get the hell off to Tel Aviv in like five seconds. But, you know, I like the sunshine and rude people. <laughs> and I understand that one thing that breaks my heart is the loyalty of British Jews to uh, this country. Yeah, we are loyal. Uh, whenever I used to go to the Zion, to Rally Hall, the Zionist events there, at the start, I'd always feel like a mutant just TV because we'd have to get up and stand up and sing God Save, God the, save Queen. the Queen. I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. We say, we say a prayer for the royal family every but, Shabbat yeah, morning. I know. Yeah, we do. It's a, it's a beautiful level of loyalty, which I don't think has been repaid to be honest yeah. hopefully now Corbyn's been given a hiding we've shown the electorate really don't aren't keen on that sort of thing no Britain made the right choice in 2019 there was a very a people. a lot of people said to me um, Jewish friends of mine quite dispiritedly oh the working class didn't didn't reject Corbyn because of he, he was after the Jews they don't care but I saw a, an interview with a, a railway worker in Yorkshire and he just said that thing with Corbyn and the Jews, if we do that to them, what we do to us. And um, I think people did, Gentile people did generally know that that is a marker of a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah, it just, it starts with the Jews, yeah, as they always definitely. say. Yeah, that's it. I hate Kirstana, he's so boring, but he's married to one, so we ain't going to tolerate too much Yankee Panky. Though we did, of course, campaign for Corbyn. He did campaign for Corbyn, and he hasn't really struck a chord over and above saying well I'm Keir Starmer not him yeah. that's kind of all he's done yeah he's like an octopus isn't he but not a smart got a little finger and everything yeah yeah but not very firmly yeah. they can yeah, draw back yeah. again is, is, he gonna, is he going to beat trust who knows I liked Kemi um, I like Kemi as well I got a request that I follow her today on uh, <laughs> Facebook and I never get excited <laughs> I really screamed loudly that's so She's exciting she knows who you are that's great yeah. <laughs> Um, and what about Israel, the future of Israel? Jeez. Oh, I think we'll just go on getting bolder and braver and smarter. And I, Even though I loathe the Arab countries they've made peace with, it had to happen, you know. And you could just see the friends of Palestine jumping up and down every time the next sheikh gets off the plane from, like, the UAE or whatever. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and that does make me laugh. So they've got, they've got to do what helps them survive. They have to be pragmatic about yes. all. But anyone Obviously, who... it's not nice if they pile up with Putin, but, you know, I'm, I'm a actually just completely uncritical fan of Israel. Whatever it does, I'd support it. When you say panning up with Putin, you mean Israel panning up with Putin. Yeah. yeah but they have to over Syria. Yeah, I know, I get It's that. pragmatic decisions. That's why I don't criticise them. You can't, can you? I because, just like them. Yeah. But, I mean, that is about security over Syria. Yeah, I get um, it. 
And of course, the reason why Russia is helpful to Israel is not because they like them, it's because they don't have to confront Iran, who are the other competing power in yeah. Syria. Well, of course, I don't criticise them. Um, when I was read Gordon May's autobiography, My Life, I was very pleased, cause, and I showed this to my dad and he was happy. Gordon says that without the Soviet Union, Israel couldn't have existed. It, she said it was the Soviet Union that sent them weapons through Czechoslovakia. I was really impressed when I found that out, very happy yeah. indeed. Yes, they were the first uh, helpers, and then France became the next one, and then they disappeared, and then the USA <laughs> kind of took over, but it's become a, a conditional relationship. <laughs> Chosen is such a funny, irreverent book, and Julie offered to bring it to life for us, reading one of her favourite paragraphs from it. Annie Rutzer, meaning I want, highlights the impatience and the apparent insolence of Israelis. On my first visit there, when I had the last echo of my good looks, I remember the baffled Israeli boy who hit on me with the words, I want, you want. <laughs> when I protested that I was married, he retorted, he no here. You want, I want. These days, I'm not above playing the flaky old lady card to get through security sharpish. I always pack my Hebrew textbook at the top of my hand luggage, and when the fierce young operative seizes it and asks, Do you speak Hebrew? I answer in my rustic child's voice, And the Oavet Ketuvim Vekelevim. I love cats and dogs. <laughs> the effect is nothing short of miraculous. Mm. As the stern face breaks into a smile and a cry of whatever the ivrit is for here, come and listen to this freak, you won't believe it, rings out across the LR check-in area. Hebrew is difficult, beautiful, rebellious and most importantly, the sensible choice for me as I can't imagine a time when I won't want to keep going back to the land where they speak it no matter how rude they are. How lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Julie, I've had the privilege of interviewing in this podcast series Trevor Horn. Who oh, was, Buggles. Yeah, who obviously became a superstar record producer in the 80s. Okay. And goes every week to my synagogue. Oh, I didn't know Every he was week. Jewish. He's not. Oh, nice. He was married to a Jewish woman. Unfortunately, she passed away. His children are Jewish because he's, he's matrilineal. He's matrilineal. And he still, he said to me in the podcast, I believe in Judaism more than I believe in anything else. That's wonderful. I've been uh, converted to Judaism a few times because um, I believe in it much more than I believe in pretty much anything else. He's a sign of intelligence. Yeah. And he pours over the week's parasha, the week's yeah. part of the Torah in English to really try and understand it. That's beautiful. Amazing guy. 
it's the religion you can spend your whole life learning. It is, yeah. But other religions come very quickly, and that's why I don't trust them as much. I think it's also because we're the priest. You have all Jewish men have to be the priest class. We all have to play a role in actually taking the service. If I turn up for an evening service, the rabbi will ask me, or someone who goes more regularly, will you, would you like to lead the service? I know, I see you. Yeah, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Batea Von. Yeah. One of the funniest trips I took there, I went with the, the ZF, the Zionist Federation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not what I was used to. I was used to going to Tel Aviv, living at Ark. Start drinking on the beach in the morning, going to some <laughs> restaurants and clubs. Yeah. Like, I'm really going to be serious this time. Israel's about more than going out and having fun. Well, they well. took us all over. We had to go to the training school for guide dogs. That was brilliant. Guide it. puppies. And I learned the interesting fact that guide puppies in Israel are given English names like Judy and Linda because they can't give them Israeli names like Yael or Ronit. Because if the dog hears someone call that in the street, they're going to run off. So no one's going to call someone Linda in the street. That's so interesting. Then I went, now this is a strange <laughs> thing. I've been very happy and excited to go on this, but everywhere I went, I did fall asleep. So first I fell asleep at the guide dog training school. Then they took us to the underground headquarters of the Haganah. We played back with all noises, bombs going off, machine guns, I fell asleep there too. No. Then we got taken to the Knesset. All my life I'd wanted to go to a Knesset. What did I do? I sat there in the chamber. fell asleep in the chamber. Then we went for a meeting with the leader of the Labour Party. Now, the chamber is very big, so if I fell asleep, no one noticed. But when we went to meet with the leader of the Labour Party, the room we met in was goes from here to the umbrella there. <laughs> there were 12 of us around the table. <laughs> I fell asleep. And do, you know, do you know Eda Simmons? Yes. And then Eda, who was on... Tour guide without a disease. She fell asleep too. That's so funny. That was Technion. Yeah, that, well, it was. And she started snoring. It was hilarious. <laughs> the leader of the Labour Party was such a nice man. But Alan said afterwards, wow, I can't believe what you two did. And he's such an elegant woman. She looks so ashamed of herself. That is so, so funny. Two out of 12 people fell asleep while talking to this man. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a lovely time. And, then we went to and when was the last time you went to Israel? Oh, not since before the COVID. Mm, think? I just can't get excited about travelling now because of all the hassle it looks like. Um, and then we went to the village of Abu Ghosh. It was so wonderful. So and what was Abu there? Ghosh um, sided with uh, Israel during the war. Uh, Arab village. And they hid, they hid members of the Haganah and they were on the side. Wow. And this is what broke my heart. Now some of the settlers, teenagers, do come down and wreck their cars. Oh, that's terrible. That's unacceptable. Yeah, no, this is something that happens in the second half of my book when it becomes more serious and dark. Right. That's unacceptable. Would it, is it a people. Druze village, a Bedouin village? No, no. Because I love the Druze. I'm very interested in them. Aren't they? It's just a full-on Arab village. Why did they choose Israel? Do you know? Was it geographically inside, much inside where Israel was fighting? Do you know what the reasons were? No, I don't. Mm. But they were such welcoming people. Very nice to hear. Have you ever been on one of those tours with Alan Aziz? Do you know, I, um, Ida asked me uh, to go on the last one. I couldn't go. She's a fan of the podcast. She's a lovely woman. Alan's very funny. Yeah. Good people. 
And Technion's an amazing organisation, amazing. Churchill opened one of the wings, I think, in 1949 or 1951. Wow. Yeah. It's named, one of the wings of the Technion is named after him. You know what you were saying about how when there's a Jewish gathering, they always sing, um, God, save, God Save the Queen. Mm. What's the... Um, I know all people are different, but is there a Jewish view on where the monarchy should go if Prince Charles should inherit? He's been overfond of Arab. Yeah. He's a slightly more woke character, isn't he? I don't think Israel likes to interfere in anyone's domestic issues. I get that. I just wondered if there was an opinion on him. There was an awful letter that he wrote to um, Lawrence Lander Post. And I write about this in the Spectator. A lot of Israelis... um, make the joke that the last king of Israel was George VI, which of course is a fact. <laughs> so no, I, I've noticed that, that Israel has a pragmatic view of everyone else's domestic policies. I asked, I've asked a number of ambassadors, including Ambassador Doré Gold. I asked him what, he was the guy who reached out to the Hashemite kingdom, the Jordanians, yeah. and he was the guy who launched the peace in 1994, uh, with Israel, while Labour were in power in Israel, who were messing about with the Oslo Accords. Yeah. And of course, Jordan were much more suited as peace partners with the Hashemites than the Oslo Accords, the, the left-wing version of, 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 of peace. And I said, Ambassador, why don't you reach out to the leader of the opposition in exile? He lives in London, a chap called Mudar Zahran because he is more ideologically suited to a peace than the Hashemite kingdom, who really, in many ways, are not particularly pro-Israel. And he basically said that it is best for Israel to make peace with partners who are stable, rather than, even if they're ideologically not suited, because he said diplomacy is a very challenging yeah, thing. You know, it's, it's, it's real politic. So that was his um, his take on that. Anyway, so how is your how are your weeks? How do your weeks go here? Are they totally disciplined around around writing? No, they're all based on the weather. There's <laughs> no point living in a seaside town if you don't have the weather be your guide. That's true. So my life is a constant pull of uh, staying in and making money, going out and spending money. But I'm a very early riser. I can get more done between 5 o'clock and 9 o'clock than I can all day. So if I get up early, then the day's my own. And the patient, then you'll get a nice deadline, like one today, and then I have one tomorrow. I've got a lot of work, but because I can do it very early, early in the morning, it doesn't bother me that much. It doesn't intrude on my life that much. How long do you get with a deadline? Does someone come in and say you've got 12 hours to do one? Or? It depends how often the publication comes out. If you write for the Mail on Sunday... Mm. They asked me to do it on Friday. It doesn't have to be done until tomorrow, so you get loads of days. But then some people say, can you do it right now? It's all different. Right. I've never missed a deadline, not even when I was off my nut. <laughs> I have behaved badly in the past, unprofessionally. Oh, gosh, I'll tell you a really funny story. Well, I was working at The Guardian, and it was a very slow week. I had a column in the weekend section. And it was a slow week, and I thought... I know what I'll do. 
This is so funny. This is awful. Okay, what to do? I'd like to come about political scandals in history. Right. Um, that's always uh, saucy and a romp. And then I noticed that I presumed my reliable. I I misread a piece about a Labour MP stealing some knickers off his ex-girlfriend's washing line. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was. <laughs> so I, I wrote about this. <gasps> well, someone should have stopped me. That's all I say. Why do you employ subs? Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was printed, <laughs> and then it turned out. Oh, so he came along and he sued the guys in for a lot of money. Oh, I don't know how much it was. Several hundred pounds in. Really? That's not the end of the joke, though. I'm sorry, Johnny, but there's worse to come. <laughs> it's taken massive. Has it settled out of court? I don't know. Must have been. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to cause more trouble. Anyway, I've taken so much drugs. But the Times came along and they offered me. A three-year contract like a footballer. I thought, wow, I'm going there. Amazing. So I went to the Times. Well, did work for a few weeks. But you know what I'm going to say, don't you? One week came and there was just nothing that came to mind. So I thought, I'll do political scandals in history. Ah. And I was that off my head. You know what I did? You repeated it. I repeated it again. Unbelievable. And he got issued times. I know. That's terrible. I know. I didn't know if I was coming or going. That was the most unprofessional time. I, I mean, it couldn't have happened to a better person either, could it really? No. But it's, I understand right. that he doesn't like to be a nicker stealer. No. No. That's so funny. That happened twice. Yeah, so that, eventually the Times paid me to go away. <laughs> I think that was quite a, it was a lot of money. That was a low point of my career. I'm so, just obsessed with going out all the time and partying. I don't even just moved here. I'm sort of calmed down a little bit now. Yeah. So, you don't write for The Guardian anymore? Oh. I definitely both of the times um, and I did write a farewell valedictory piece and I said it was because of their anti-Semitism a bit like Melanie Phillips yeah but then because I'm always joking I did say I'd also been offered a I was thinking about a buddy so that helped too yeah once wasn't it the guys were very strange strange attitude to women once when I asked for a rise, they offered to buy me a sofa instead. Right. And when Suzanne Moore was there and she asked for a rise, they offered to give her a new kitchen. Really? I think it's a bit... That's se- how they do it. They did do that to men. <laughs> I think it's a bit sexy, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah, that's so funny. Well, no. So the, money, the guy's always got money. Yeah. And women got soft furnishings. That's so funny. So, are you, are you out at the Guardian now, do you think? Um, will there be, ever be a way back for you? Whoop. No. I'm not keen. Mm. It's more this story. It's a bit more stark. She realised that she was on the wrong side. She realised all her friends on the left-leaning side back in the 80s were in fact on the opposite side Ooh. and she kind of fell out with them in a very short period of time and essentially left and she wasn't a Zionist in any way she was a pro-Israel but she lives in Jerusalem now oh really yeah, yeah. I had no idea she's another amazing writer um she really is she's amazing she's very far in Brimstone isn't she um very clear I'd like to listen to her on the Moral, Moral maze. maze. Yeah. But I'm glad she still does that. 
she's very fierce. But she's very moral. She and is. I she is. That. I'm not a moral person. I think whatever people's leanings, they have to listen to her. They have to listen to people. Have to listen to her. But she's too much of a. She's a finger wagger. She tells people how they should live. Mm. Thinks people are immoral if they don't get married and have children. Does I'm she think that? Pretty sure she does. That's the impression one gets. Yeah, maybe. Maybe she's social conservative. Maybe. I don't like that sort of thing. There's something fearful about it. Yeah, I understand. We're having a great time. It's Thank lovely. you very much. For Do you ever go back to Bristol? No, Johnny, I don't, and I'll tell you why. I'm not a sentimental person. I'm very, very hard. Maybe with a touch of uh, sociopathy. Right. John Ronson thinks. <laughs> um, but uh, I was crazy about my parents. Mm. I gave them a. I let them a merry dance because I was always, from the age of twelve, wanting to be famous and be a writer. But I haven't been back to Bristol since their funerals. Because if I heard everybody talking like them yeah. in the Bristol accent, I just couldn't get through oh, it. Yeah. I guess that that's how I know I really loved them. Yeah. So yeah, that's my oh. that's my tragic. Well, self you are side. sentimental. You say you're not, but you are. I'm not a bit sentimental. Because you say you're not. No, because I don't have an attachment to things. If I like a thing, I'll give it away on purpose. Yeah. Oh, I remember you. I remember something we made maybe laugh out loud. You talked about Bristolians being workaday wurzels. Did I say that? That sounds horrible and snobbish. No, but it was. It didn't mean it like that. It was just. It was. It, I'm just taking it out. It was. Um, oh, well. It was like a quote. I think I should be reported for that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. There's a very funny thing about Bristol. Instead of from Nigeria. But you're not snobby, and that's why I didn't interpret it. No, I'm not snobby. a snob. No. Um, I had a friend from Nigeria, and he was going to go to a university there, and he says, "So I got, I got off the train, and gave my ticket, and the woman said, all right, my lover.' I thought, wow. <laughs> I got on the bus, a lovely woman came up, right, my lover? I said, wow, what is it? I'm going to be catnip to the women here, he said. And then I checked it at the hotel, and there was a matter of such, she said, all right, my lover. And he said, oh, no, it's here to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most beautiful, affectionate town. But I was such a horrible, headstrong little girl. All I wanted to do was get away from it. Mm. And they say, you can't go back. You can't, can you? I can't go back to Birmingham now. Well, there's obvious reasons for that. Because <laughs> you can't find your way back in. <laughs> <laughs> there's only one way. I've never been in a car so long. But I still have family there. I've got my um, uncle and aunt and their children and grandchildren, which is very unusual. Proud of you. Uh, yeah, they, they, they look out for me, yeah. Um, um, which is nice, but um, the place has changed quite a lot. Since but I was a kid, things are meant to change. They are meant to change. Come on, it's not like Birmingham's lost its pastoral beauty since you were a child. It's not too bad. It's it's it, it has a it has a bad reputation, but it shouldn't really. It's nicer than parts. Everywhere's of got a bad it's reputation. It's tidier than London. Through. I've got a friend from Birmingham called Natalie Haynes. Mm-hmm. She's a comedian. She mm-hmm. don't speak. She doesn't speak like you though. Is it true that posh people speak the same everywhere? It is. Yeah. That's so weird. There isn't. There isn't. You, there isn't a universal. Birmingham accent amongst like the doctors for example and, and lawyers it's so funny when you meet someone from Edinburgh made it like Prince Charles <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Although occasionally they have that Ronnie Corbett kind of thing with the R. It's always it's always there, isn't it? Did you read uh, the sainted Kemi's husband writing about her in the spectacular? Yes, I saw that. So beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was lovely. They say don't Hamish. Meet, Hamish. They say don't meet your political hero, but I am married to one. Oh. oh. What I love about her also is that then I found out she's got three children, one's a teenager. I love women in the public eye who don't make a big thing no. about being mothers. Do you think she could have I mean she's she's quite small. She doesn't look like the archetypal leader. Do you think she would have had great presence with Macron, with Trump? I think with... she would have thrown a scare into everyone. Really, do you? Immediately, that card that the Wokers like to play, stale pale male, she would have made every man on earth look defunct. Because she only speaks the truth, doesn't she? She's... And she, she looks like a very, young, a very young woman, but she's such a wise woman. Yeah, she is. I can imagine her walking in, such a Brexiteer too. Her main speech was just mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can see her walking into a meeting with Europeans if she has to, and just how they'd look next to her, and how Kistara would look next to yeah. her. Yeah, it's so, a shame she didn't make the final two. She's thankfully so young, but yeah. Has she got a chance leader. of being leader, do you think, one day? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She's so young and vigorous. Yeah. She is very young, isn't she? She's older than she looks. She has a 17-year-old daughter. Right. Which we didn't know about, which is brilliant. Right. I hate those women who try and, like, breastfeed everywhere, like, you know. Come on, love, put it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would, you like a, would you like a coffee or anything? No, I'll have another glass of wine. Hey, still haven't forgotten that night we had 20 years ago. Mm. And I was like, oh, no. So it wasn't a sex thing. Um, I've just taken drugs with so many people. But you're over any sort of shame or embarrassment, aren't you? Or are you? I gave up cocaine in 2015, completely overnight, after taking it for 30 years. And you gave it up because? I, I literally had enough of it. It wasn't a money thing, it wasn't a health thing. I was still enjoying it. And then one day I just thought, oh. Were you worried it might kill you, though? Never, not once. Or when it might make you know never, bleed not or you set some fall I have out to or... say to you, never, not once. Really? I used to go to the doctor regularly and they'd say, well, I don't want to give you a clean bill to do whatever you like, but there's nothing wrong with you. And of course, I'd take that as a, another excuse to romp off and do what I liked. Just came to the end of it being fun. And I think that's the only way you can truly give a thing up because then it doesn't play on your mind. You see, with someone like Will Self, who really wanted to stay taking heroin, yeah. well, for 10 years after he stopped, it was all we ever talked about. Yeah, he yeah. made being an ex-junkie into a profession. Whereas I loved my cocaine years, but I don't miss them. Because your cocaine enhanced your life and it yeah. internalised him. It, I love for a writer, it's the best thing in the world. And I wrote Sugar Rush, <laughs> the book, in uh, six afternoons after a nice lunch or a gram of coke. Yeah, I mean, and also as you mature and as you get older, I know you said, you know, I've stayed 17 because that's when I started getting successful, but you enjoy your life in different ways as you get older, don't no, you? I know I do. I know. Kids it's have changed my life. No, it's not like that for me. No? I still live the life of an irresponsible person. It was something about, I, you have the same conversations on cocaine around and round and round. And if anybody ever records you talking on cocaine, you think you're sounding brilliant. But you sound like a village yeah. Just talking really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You lose all kinds of self-awareness on cocaine. You do, but that's one of the fun things. Yeah. I think it worked a great <laughs> thing on me. Until my 20s, I was a very shy girl. Growing up, I was pathologically shy. If I saw someone walking down the street in Bristol, I knew I'd cross the road because I, I was too shy to say hello. 
that's the way you get a, a reputation as being a really stuck-up cow. So people thought I was stuck up when I was shy. When I was 24, I moved back to London after my first marriage and moved in with Cosmo, my Jewish husband. Yes. We started to take co- cocaine non-stop and it really brought me out of my shell. Right. I know there's cheaper ways of being brought Permanently. out of your shell. Yeah, and it worked this whammy on me. And when I gave it up, the confidence didn't go. Yeah. And you took it over, what, three oh, decades? Gosh, every day. Yeah. Like three times a day, like brushing yeah. your teeth. Mm. But I'm very, very... Lord willing, uh, very uh, healthy for my age. Yes, you look very well. I'm very spry. Do you, a spry do you, old lady. Do you come from a long living family? Well, both my parents died when they were 69, but I say mm. 70 because 69 sounds rude. What did they have to die at the, rude, at the rudest age of the alphabet? My dad died of asbestosis over years, oh, really? Saloma. My mum died of a heart attack in my arms. So I've seen one oh. take a long time and I've seen one go like that. Uh, I guess I'd be happy to go now. I've not got no fear of dying. I hope you don't. I don't really mind because I've done so much. The world is. So, well, the world is. Are you, are you, you, you're content, you're content now at this stage of your life and... Yeah, absolutely. You, you don't want to go, this isn't the I end. I don't want to die. No. If I could choose not to, I'd choose, but I don't believe I can choose because the Lord will tell me where to go. Yeah. Do you think your philosemitism has encouraged your Christianity, do you think? It does. I'll tell you what, when I was taking my instruction, I realised a thing. I don't mind being a bad Christian, I hate to be a bad Jew. There are qualities in me of immorality... Drunkenness, profanity, spite. That I, I can I can reconcile those with being Christian in a funny way. Right. But if I was Jewish, I'd want to hold myself proudly. And I don't think I'm ready for that yet. Yeah, we 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 don't have confession. We just have Yom Kippur. Yeah. You know, which I know, is just. It's a. It's a grown-up religion, and Christianity was something childish about it, which I think, you know, suit me better. There was a very graphic image of it once, which uh, I experienced. We were lighting the menorah in um, in Palmyra Square, which is the thing we do every year. When I say we, it's funny how I constantly say community. we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we were all standing around being wholesome and eating little donuts. <laughs> and the Christmas tree was being put up, and there was a bunch of drunk swaying beneath it. <laughs> Like in the fairy tale of New York, singing carols, and I was standing with the Jews, just having these little donuts. But I was looking at the drugs, thinking I really belong with them. Ah. And it was such a graphic the image of where, where what I wanted to be, but where I knew I was. That could have been the ninth day of Hanukkah. Does it? It could have been, yeah. I know. I I know what all the. Um, all the, all the special holidays are about. I know about Hashem's ear, the pastries, and everything. Ha- yeah, Haman's ear, yeah. Haman's ear, yeah. yeah. Yeah, think about him. It's, Purim he, is my favourite, of course. Purim is, yeah. is, is tremendous. Julie Birchall, thank you so much for your generous time here in Brighton and Hove. Toza Rabba and Kul Hakavod. That was lovely, thank you. It's short as Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish date and be first to hear the next show by subscribing now. Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy.